0: I really think there's no need for me to speak further today. Uh, It was right on point, right on target, and sums up quite well uh, what we need to do and would resolve probably some of our, if not our biggest problem, that we have right here in this community. So I'm deciding whether to sit down and have an early lunch Or go ahead and go back to the Psalms. I probably didn't get it well enough, so you probably didn't either. Let's go ahead here. We came down to Psalm 45 last week. And we kind of got into this second book of the Psalms. And it delineates in the first two or three chapters some of the problems that have been Have been and always will be as long as there are human beings. There is nothing new under the sun, and what we read about here in these Psalms reflected history from Adam and Eve on down because the cycle of difficulties of our relationship as man with God have always been essentially the same. Satan has been in the mix from the beginning. Our human nature, as Adams and Eves, has always been in the mix from the beginning. So our relationship with God has always been uh, dysfunctional to one degree or another, and in disrepair. So it seems that we go through the cycles, generation after generation, or era after era, of God's call to repentance of our intransigence and stiff-necked, hard-hearted approach, of our not caring about most anything but ourselves, and certainly not enough for each other. And this has been repeated over and over again. And God did not intervene or interfere much in the time prior to the writing of these psalms. Now, He did interfere to the point of killing nearly all mankind... Uh, He did show his anger, his frustration, from time to time. And he did not call very many in the Old Testament. He did call some, and they're listed in Hebrews 11 as being faithful ones who will be a part of the kingdom of God and the bride of Christ. There was a great jump forward. In the early New Testament church, after Christ came and fulfilled the prophecies that we've been reading about here in the Psalms, and began the New Testament church, and immediately the Holy Spirit, mixed in with man's mind, began to make a difference. And many of those people in the early New Testament church were faithful and true and obedient. They had their problems, yes. But they saw it through and endured, and they will be a part of the kingdom of God. And I would say, based on everything you can find in the Bible, that so far the biggest number of the 144,000 who will be part of the Bride of Christ came from that era. From the 30s A.D. to 100 A.D., when John's life ended toward the end of the 90s, wherever right in there. The biggest group so far. Then it more or less died out, though there was a certain continuation from 100 A.D. until the 1900s of the end time. Nearly 2,000 years in which I think the truth barely stayed alive. It was even carried into the 13 colonies when we began to settle this country and died out very quickly there. So there were a few. And I'm sure the number of the 144,000 was added to during that nearly 2,000 years. But here at the end, we have the last revival, the last opportunity, and I do believe that there will be a large number, perhaps even larger, who knows, than the early New Testament church, who round out the number from those called here at the end. We had almost 150,000 attending the feast. All those were not converted. Some were children, some were unconverted mates and grandmothers and whatever. But also during those years from 1930 to nearly 2000, many who were faithful died. No telling how many hundreds of thousands And of those who were alive and remained when things came apart, God says He is, from that number, going to choose about 10% to finish the work, and about another 30%, Zechariah, I think, 12 says, will repent during the tribulation. So that could be about 40% out of those who were called that will see it through, even in martyrdom, perhaps, and be a part of the Bride of Christ. So if we think that the 10% remnant could be, based on the numbers that we've dealt with here in the end time, could be seven to 12,000, somewhere in there, then if you get another 30% out of the tribulation, you could add another, let's say, roughly thirty or 30,000. So if the 10% remnant is... Let's just pick a number, 10,000, and another 30 come through, the not through, but die in the tribulation faithful. That could be 40,000, not counting those who died before the church began to come apart who were also faithful. So it could easily be that a third or more would come from this end time, and we could be counted among them. So, what is being written here, and these prophecies about Christ and about us, is very, very germane to us today. It has everything to do with you and me. So, we went through the difficulties that Christ went through here, and we find ourselves in this mirror because these words were never truer than they are today. We're going through the same things, the same difficulties. And we ended up in chapter 44 pleading for Christ to awake and arise and cast us not off forever. And we call upon Him and we want Him to arise and be our help and redeem us for His mercy's sake. Not for our greatness, but because of His mercy. And that certainly is our plea as we look across the church and how it has come apart and how we struggle ourselves to be what we ought to be. Now, when we get into chapter 45, with that prayer resounding in our ears, let's consider that he flashes forward here and gives us some hope, I think some inspiration, and some encouragement in these next few chapters, that in spite of all that we are going through, that he went through, that David went through, that Abraham went through, because that which has been shall be. There is nothing new under the sun. So what we find ourselves in in times of plight and difficulty and trial, trouble, and tribulation is nothing new. Others have gone through it, and they have been faithful and true. Others have not. Let's look at the encouraging side of this. Chapter 45 of the Psalms. My heart is indicting a good matter. That's old King James English from 1611 and doesn't really uh, come around the thought. In my margin, it says, my heart wills or my heart bubbles up in the Hebrew. My heart bubbles up a good thing. In other words, we've had troubles, but... My heart wants to consider the good. It wants to bubble up like a fountain or a spring with good waters. It wants to be cheerful. It wants to be joyous. I would love to have that feeling, instead of being depressed, discouraged, frustrated, whatever, I would love to just be bubbling forth, is the tenor of what he's saying here. It's it's a matter of mind, emotion, and attitude, is what he's discussing. So, in spite of our troubles, I want to bubble forth. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. Now, David did some great works in building the kingdom of Israel for God, and he had made some strides in that direction that had not been there through Saul and the past of Israel at that time. So he was thinking on the good things that he had done in terms of the mighty king Christ, as we'll see that's who he's talking about here in a little bit. And we have to consider that we have come out of the world, that we have begun the process of growing, changing, overcoming, and being what we ought to be. So we can think good on those things, not always be discouraged because of what we do lack, but encouraged in the progress that we have made to date. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. So whether it be the tongue speaking the words or writing it down, (coughs) his attitude was to be of a ready mind. Now we say Paul... Repeating that, I'll not go there for sake of time, but 2 Corinthians eight twelve and 19, he talks of having a willing mind in verse 12 and of a ready mind in verse 19. 1 Peter 5, 2 talks about having a ready mind. We do not want to be stiff-necked, hard-hearted, selfish, pulling back like a backsliding heifer, as Hosea said. But of a ready, willing mind and spirit, always abounding in serving, helping, giving, and doing the work that God would have us do. And the work is not always printing, publishing, and writing, and speaking. But the work is helping, serving, giving to others. Of a ready mind to help wherever we can. Not to hurt, but to help. You are fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Now, this is a prophecy of Christ, as we shall see. that his Father had blessed him forever because he is above in his mind, his readiness, his willingness. And he certainly was willing to give of himself entirely and totally, even in death and in torture before death for you and me. And therefore, God has blessed him and placed him on high forevermore. Gird your sword upon your thigh, o, my, o most mighty, with the glory, or your glory and your majesty. And of course, in Revelation, it shows that he is indeed going to put on the sword and come back to the earth, that he is going to come in glory and honor and majesty. So, this chapter. This whole book fits so very closely with the book of Revelation. These are prophetic words here that John was inspired to repeat in the book of Revelation. So if you think Psalms is just bedtime stories or feel-good material, there's a whole lot more to it than that. And in your majesty, ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. Now, he has all those things. And how did he open the Sermon on the Mount? By extolling these virtues that he himself has. Because he was beginning in a formal way to truly prepare the bride from that moment forward by training those disciples to become apostles and later to spread his word once he was gone. So, these very things that... David spoke of Christ, then became our turn to become. Your right hand shall teach you terrible things. Hard to understand, important, not terrible in the sense of bad, but incredible things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. Now, the sword of the Spirit, the sword of the Word, the arrows of His Word... Not necessarily literal arrows, but the spiritual arrows. Because it is his word and the power behind it. Follow Well, he's going to have to have the sword that kills physically. But it is the spiritual arrows that go to the heart as well. And both those things have to be done. Mankind responds to power. Mankind responds to pain. Mankind rarely responds to words, and that is why I exhorted this at the beginning to take what was said in the sermonette, and if we could apply what was said just in that short time period, faithfully in our lives, we would be so much further ahead spiritually than we are today. Easy to say, hard to do. God is going to have to bring pain to this earth. Death and destruction and misery before human beings will be humble, meek, and begin to truly seek righteousness. And we experience trials, troubles, and difficulties spiritually right now to bring those same attitudes into our hearts and minds that he is going to use physical death and suffering to do with the rest of the world. That is why we have to go through it, because we basically respond to pain. It's sad, but it's true. So your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under you. We have to fall on our knees, or our knees will be broken, and we will fall anyway. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a right scepter. He will rule righteously, lovingly, kindly, and yet firmly. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, the Father, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. Joy and gladness is one of the fruits of the Spirit of God. And He has been elevated to that... Level of joy and happiness that can only be only be obtained in immortality and the mind of God. So He was raised above it all. Christ was. All your garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces, whereby they have made you glad. Now this sounds like the Song of Songs, where the bride there is extolling her husband and is speaking of the virgin daughter of Israel those who are called out, the church, and their attitude and approach to Christ. And he is extolled in the Song of Songs very highly by the bride-to-be that was there. King's daughters were among your honorable women. Upon your right hand did stand the queen and gold of Ophir. Now, he is beginning to then start building up here, not only Christ, but His bride-to-be. And this is important for us to grasp and to understand, because it has very much to do with our attitudes as we go through day by day in life, and our attitudes one to another. He has raised us, even as He raised Christ, He has raised us to a level to be considered king's daughters, arrayed in gold. And those who speak often of him, as it says in the book of Malachi, will be thought of when he makes up his jewels, when he crowns his queen. So this is the same language. He says, hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear." Now, he talks throughout the prophecies of the virgin daughter of Zion, and he does often in the Psalms as we proceed. And in Proverbs 31, he shows that of the daughters that came out of the church here at the end, one will be the fairest of them all. One will be chosen to be the leader of the other daughters, and to that one, others will come from the other daughters to form the end time work that needs to be done. That part of the bride. Now others, as I said, will go into tribulation and they will repent there and likely physically die there. But having repented will also be a part of the bride of Christ. Having washed their clothes and martyrdom and under the blood of Christ. But for those who live, who will be the fairest daughter, the virgin daughter that he is to marry. He tells us to hearken and listen. Incline your ear, be of a ready mind to hear, not just to speak, but to hear. Forget also your own people and your father's house. Now that was God's intent from the very beginning. We are to leave our father and mother as a man and cleave to our wife. We are not to live with Mama and Papa. We are not to depend upon them through our lives. But we are to establish our own home and our own family. And God intended all children to have two parents, not one. Because any family that only has one parent is a dysfunctional family, is not balanced, and cannot give that child what it needs. I read an article last night which was very good, and it showed how so many young women today cannot find the kind of man they're looking for, so they'll have children on their own as single mothers. And there's a trend growing to do that. But he pointed out very well that God intended a balanced family with a father and a mother, and anyone who brings a child into this world without the family is doing that child a disservice, no matter how they might desire children or uh, yield to their own selfishness. They cannot, by themselves, provide everything that child needs. So it is an act of selfishness is what it comes down to. So Christ is extolled here. He is the head of the family. And then the bride-to-be is addressed. So he said, forget your own people. And isn't that what Christ told us to do? To set aside our physical relatives who are not called into the church. Leave father, mother, brother, sister, children, whatever, and come and follow me. Sometimes we tend to cling to our families and we worry so much about them because they're not called and not part of the church today, even though they may have grown up in it. And this is a frustration to a lot of people today in God's church. And what it is, and what it amounts to, is being willing, and I've said this before and will probably say it again, willing to put faith in God... That he knows what is best for our children and when he will call them. Now, he has made it very clear that he has called a generation here at the end, and this will all end before that generation dies out. He has expressed that ahead of time and has told us and let us know that that is his intent. So if we are not willing to set our own people aside at times and concentrate upon those whom He has called and make them our brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and so on, as Paul said, and as Christ said when He says, My mother, my brothers and sisters can wait. These who are listening to my words come first. Are we willing to put our children in God's hands and let Him take care of them in the time that He so desires? My heart goes out to my own. Basically good, upstanding citizens, but they have rejected most everything of God and are trying to get rid of what they did know for the most part, I can't do anything for them. I can't talk to them. I can't get them to change their minds. I cannot call them. I cannot get them to understand. God has chosen not to call them. And my grandchildren are being taught Protestantism today, some of them. I guess all of them, really. It would do me no good to fret and to worry over that. They belong to God. I dedicated my eldest son to God, the firstborn, when he was born, and did a prayer to do it. God remembers that. And it's up to him to call him and the others when he so chooses. My second son asked for a blessing some years ago, and we got down on the road and prayed. And I prayed a very heartfelt prayer for him. But he's going a different direction today. I can't change that. I can't do a thing about it. I don't want to see them go through what the rest of this world is going through, but chances are that will happen. Unless when he begins to truly stir people to come and finish the work, some of our children may be called then. They may realize, hey, mom and dad were right. God's truth is there. There is always that possibility with some of them. But that's up to God. I can't change it. All I can do today, brethren, and part of that is because I have limited access to the minds of people who were in the church or who are not in the church. I have very limited access by spoken word or written word to many people. This will be put on the internet before the evening is over, but not many people will go there and see it or hear it. They just won't. Maybe sometime in the future there will be a larger audience when these things begin to happen. But right now I'm limited. Now what am I limited to? Basically, you, on the phone line and sitting right here. That is all I can do. And you, in some respects, are even more limited than I. Now, not entirely, because I can only influence and affect each one of you here, essentially. But you have that same opportunity. Maybe not to speak in the same way. Some of you do at times. But you still have the opportunity to set an example for, lead, and influence each other to good and to righteousness. I have a more public forum. Yours is more private, but it's still there. So he says, Hearken, O daughter, and consider and listen to this. Now, when he says listen to this, you need to be very aware of what he says next, right? When somebody says, All right, now, focus, listen. What they say next is going to be very important. Okay. Forget also your own people and your father's house. That was inspired of God. It was repeated by Christ in the New Testament, and it was repeated by the gospel writers, including Paul, many times in various ways. In other words, we are told by God to put each other here, those in our spiritual family, ahead of our physical families. That is God's will. That is God's purpose. That is God's Word. I can't repair my spiritually dysfunctional physical family. I cannot do it. So what good does it do to beat my head against the wall about it day in and day out? It will accomplish nothing but give me a bad attitude. That's all it will accomplish. So let's quit beating our heads against the wall and forget our own people physically, if they're not part of God's church at this point, and concentrate on helping those whom God has already called to be our spiritual family. This, before me today, is my family. I must put you, each and every one of you, ahead of my physical sons and daughters and grandchildren. I must. God commands me to. This is what I can do something about. You are those whom I might help with these words today. Gordon Sermonette. Was right on point. He has some of his relatives. Who are not truly tuned in to God's word today. Maybe. Somewhat. But not totally. He can't influence them much. He can influence you. Hopefully. This is where his work can be done. This is the family. Dysfunctional as it may be. That we must make functional. This is the body, this is the family that God has put us in. He called us from all over the nation, even partly from the world, I mean the globe. Various family backgrounds, various experiences, various levels of, of intelligence, of education, of gifts and abilities, and lacks thereof. Strangers and pilgrims, weak and base. He threw us together right here, called us not only into the church, but called us to be here. And we responded and came. Now he says, Leave the others behind, and you learn to live together and love each other like you would your own family and the Spirit is thicker than blood. If the Spirit of God is not thicker than human blood, what's the point? Human blood cannot save other human blood. The Spirit of God can save any human blood when the time is right. We have no control whatever over whom God calls. We have to incline our ear and accept whom He has called and know that He called them by name and He brought them here. Let's speak of ourselves. We must see God in our lives, not just in everybody else's, but ours. Because it is ours that we are dealing with. In this congregation, God called together here. Now, other congregations He may have called together wherever they may be. But we cannot really influence them very much either, can we? We can only deal with what we have been given to deal with. So taking that thought, let's move on, because he's talking to the daughter. Verse 11, So shall the king greatly desire your beauty, for he is your Lord... And worship you him. Now, if we are part of the daughter, part of the bride to be, the virgin daughter of Israel, then Christ greatly desires us. Okay? You've all been either twitter pated in school or perhaps in love in adult maturity. And went through a dating, a betrothal process, which we are in with Christ today. And you were so excited. And you just couldn't get your intended off your mind. It was just there. Always. Always. And that's the way he feels toward us. It says so right here. The king greatly desires our beauty. Now, we are beautiful to him. We need to understand that. For He is your Lord. Worship you, Him. He wants us to be in His kingdom. He wants us to be there at that great wedding in the skies, or at the Father's throne. He has called us, set us aside for that purpose, each and every one of us here. We're engaged to Christ through baptism and acceptance of the way of God. So he looks upon us with great desire. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Now he's projecting forward to the time when we have married Christ and have come back to reign on this earth. And the daughters of Tyre, symbolism here of the wicked system of this world will change their minds through the death and destruction of over 90% of the people on this earth. And instead of hating us, they will turn and come and bring a gift. This is what he has set in store for us. Even the rich among the people shall entreat your favor. Right now there is a movement in the world to hate all Christians, to destroy all Christians. It's a growing movement. And those are even pseudo-Christians, most of them, who do not know God. How much more does Satan want us destroyed? But it's going to turn around when they see us glorified and ruling in majesty with Christ on this earth. Then they will have a different attitude. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of worked gold. But we are too... Don the garments of righteousness and be glorious within. Didn't Christ say the outside appearance doesn't matter? It's what's inside that counts. We have to be glorious within. How we look physically really has very little to do with anything. It's the inner glow. The halo needs to be on the inside. Now, it'll show on the outside if it's there in attitude and approach and so on. It will. She shall be brought to the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. Sinners will not be allowed in the new Jerusalem with the father and the son there at the beginning of the millennium. But we will. Because we're the bride of Christ. Now, consider this. How Christ and the Father look upon you and me today. We already saw up here that he greatly desires our beauty. And the the righteousness that we begin to show. Now, how did Paul describe the Corinthians? That he wished to present them as chaste virgins to Christ. Christ. Now, they had been in all manner of sin, all manner of wrong attitudes. But they began to change their mind. And Paul viewed them as clean, as cleansed, as pure. And God views us the same way. Cleansed, clean, pure. Satan the devil goes before him with your name and mine, on his lips, on a regular basis. He is the accuser of the brethren. Now Christ is set on high, as said here, and he has shown great glory at the beginning of this chapter. Then it switches to the bride and shows her in glorious righteousness with Christ reigning on the earth and the kings of the earth then bringing gifts to her. So in his mind, because he looks upon things that are not as if they already were, he looks upon us as that chaste bride, as that virgin daughter of Israel. And he has to defend us (coughs) before Satan. He has to say, that's my bride, get your tongue off her. She is forgiven. Her sins are washed away in my blood. Now, how do you... Men feel if someone comes to you and starts running down your wife? You get very angry. How do you women feel if someone starts running down your husband? Now, either of you can do it yourselves, but boy, if somebody else does it, you get excited in a hurry. Now, Christ has the same attitude. When Satan comes to accuse his bride, he becomes very upset. And he is eventually going, his wrath is going to be so great that at the appointed time, he is going to cast Satan to this earth and never allow him before that throne again. And Satan is going to come after that bride whom he has been persecuting and putting down all this time. And Christ will snatch her from his grasp by accounting a certain number worthy to escape and taking them to a place of refuge and protecting them from Satan the devil. He cares that much about his bride. Now consider that that is his attitude toward you and me. Okay? That's his mental outlook. That's his ready mind, we read about at the beginning, that bubbles forth to look upon his bride and greatly desire her beauty. That is his attitude toward us. He's not sitting there saying, oh my, 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 those evil, rotten, disgusting, deceitful people. He's saying, that's my bride, Satan. Let her alone. Get off her back. She's forgiven in my blood. She's clean before me. And when we ask for forgiveness and mercy, He forgives, if we forgive. Now, Gordon said something very cogent. I don't know whether it crystallized in his mind what he was really saying or not. It may have. But he touched on something that I think we need to drill in a little bit here. And that's in Matthew 6 where Christ said, we've been over it many times, I will not forgive you unless you forgive others. And he mentioned the unpardonable sin. Now I think what he was on the edge of there is helping us to understand the unpardonable sin better. I jotted something down. Unforgiveness is unforgivable. That's what Christ said, isn't it? If you don't forgive, I will not forgive you. Now consider that Esau was on the very edge of the unpardonable sin. His problem was not so much a problem with God as it was with Jacob. He simply could not, would not turn loose and forgive Jacob of the chicanery and lying and thievery that he and his mother wreaked upon him. The treachery, the deceit. He could not turn it loose. He said, I'll go against my parents, I'll marry outside my race, I will never forgive my brother, and when my parents die, I will go kill him. And the descendants of Esau have never gotten over that attitude. They are the Jews who are not Jews, spoken of in Revelation and by Christ Himself, who say they are Jews and aren't, but are Edomites of Esau. And the prophecy in the end time was that Esau would rise above Jacob and help destroy us and then gloat over it. And the book of Obadiah makes it very clear that Esau, because of that unforgiveness, will not be forgiven and the Edomite Jews will be destroyed. Because of his intransigence and unwillingness to forgive. So I think, in effect, if we are unforgiving and will not turn loose of our grudges, our so-called wrongs and wrongs, real or imagined, and we bear those grudges and attitudes and do not get rid of them, but repeat them, among ourselves to each other, it shows a lack of true forgiveness. And that lack of forgiveness constitutes an unpardonable sin. Do you follow me? He said very clearly. If you do not forgive each other, I will not forgive you. That makes our lack of forgiveness an unforgivable or an unpardonable circumstance. If we bear animosity, if we bear attitudes, if we bear grudges, we will not be in the kingdom of God. No adulterer, no liar, no thief... No one who is unwilling to forgive will be in the kingdom of God. It is easy for human beings to bear animosity and frustration over a period of days, weeks, months, years, and decades, lifetimes, where they never get over the attitude. And every one of us has that cross to bear. It is evidenced by our willingness to stab the back of the bride of Christ. To put our knives in the back of the bride of Christ. We don't think of it that way when we so easily open our mouths... And defame the character of others. We don't think of it that way. God does. When we put the knife in the back of each other, it is the same thing as Satan putting the knife before Christ in our back. It is a satanic attitude, it is not positive, it is negative. It truly is unforgiveness. He included in the same breath, same context there in Matthew 6, If you show mercy on others, I will show mercy on you. If you do not show mercy on others, I will show you no mercy. Lack of mercy is part of the unpardonable sin. Mercy means overlooking that which is imperfect. Being willing to accept the person and love them in spite of their warts. And show mercy, compassion, and forgiveness. That's what it's all about. He said, if you don't forgive and show mercy and love and service to others... Then you have not done it to me. And I will not forgive you nor show mercy on you. It's easy to think of Adam and Eve, perhaps, or Esau, or Judas as having committed the unpardonable sin. I don't know that any of them have. They may have opportunity to repent in the future when they are called because none of them were converted. Now, we here are partially converted. Partially changed. Our judgment is now. So any unforgiveness, any attitudes that Esau or Judas may not have changed and overcome, they may be given opportunity when God's Spirit is truly in their mind to forgive and show mercy, to repent. So they are not lost. The Bible does not say they are eternally. But he says judgment is now on you and me. It is not on them, it's on you and me. Let's grasp this, brethren. The Christ truly desires the beauty of His bride. And He looks upon her as clean and pure and fresh and sinless. And we mess it up daily, and we have to go before Him daily and ask for forgiveness and mercy, don't we? Yes, we do. And He grants it. And as He says in Lamentations, He gives us a new, fresh start every morning. He doesn't let the sun go down on His wrath. He gives us a fresh start. Clean, pure, and bright every morning. And then we screw it up. Through the day. But come sundown or whenever, he forgives. And he will never again mention our sin to us. What an incredible thing that is. We remind each other of our faults and sins regularly. And if not to each other, we'll do it to somebody else. Or say it to somebody else about us. Or about the one that we're talking about. It's satanic. Bottom line, it's satanic. It is ungodly. Anything that is ungodly is satanic. Okay? Satan's way. And we go that way way too often. There's a lot of encouragement in this chapter. There's a lot of the mind and attitude of the Father and the Son revealed to us here. So he said, incline your ear. Listen to what he has to say. I want pardoned tonight. I want you pardoned tonight. I want your sins wiped away in the blood of Christ this day and tomorrow. So that when Satan does come before God's throne and our husband-to-be. He can say, you are a false accuser. My bride has no sin. I have forgiven and my blood and death. That's his attitude. That's why he can enjoy our beauty of righteousness, feeble as it may be, because the filth is washed away in his blood. So now, It is imperative that we come to have the same attitude toward his bride-to-be, each other, right here. Come to have the same attitude toward each other he has, toward us, compositely and individually as the bride-to-be. Now, he has individually chosen us. You did not do it. He chose you, by name, to come here. Okay? And the other part of it is, He chose everyone else in the room the same way. And if we denigrate or put down any one of those, we are putting down part of His bride. And that he takes great exception to, just as you husbands would if somebody started putting down your wife. You see your wife's problems, just as she sees yours, and you recognize them, and other people can too. But it really bothers you if they interfere. And say something about your bride. Christ understands your problems and mine. And he is willing to show mercy and forgiveness as we show mercy and forgiveness. And to make us clean before the throne of the Father. And to enjoy our beauty. He looks upon us as having great beauty. And we must come to have that attitude toward everyone else in this room or on this phone line. So that we have his attitude of enjoying the beauty of his bride. Satan sees our faults and our weaknesses. Christ is willing to overlook them and love us anyway. It is easy for us to see the faults and weaknesses of each other. But we must forgive and show mercy and love them anyway. All of them, not just the ones we happen to like better by dint of their personality or whatever. We have to be all-inclusive. We have to love the whole body. If one little toe or toenail on the body hurts, we must all hurt. If it is blessed, we must rejoice with it and not hold back. That is Christ's attitude toward us, and it is something we must reflect to each other. Now, I haven't really said anything that wasn't said in the sermonette, have I? No. Probed a little deeper, made it a little... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Emphasized it anyway. Enlarge the picture, perhaps, somewhat. But the bottom line is, He loves us greatly, and we're to worship Him and thank Him. And we need to look at the other parts of this bride and be sure that we come to have the attitude of Christ toward each and every part of it, no matter which part of the body they happen to be. There are some you may consider to be the better-looking parts of the body. There are others you may consider to be objectionable-looking parts of the body. There's where we run into trouble. Instead of looking upon them and trying to judge which piece of the body they are, comely or uncomely, we need to look upon them as made in the image of God and given the Spirit of God, and let Him decide which part of the body they are, and not us make that judgment. It's not ours to make. He will place us in the body as He so chooses. First Corinthians 12. That's His deal, not ours. Anytime we decide somebody is a less favorable body, part of the body than we are, we're making a judgment that is His judgment to make, and we are being presumptuous in so doing, presuming them to be less than us or less than somebody else, and presumption is as the sin of witchcraft. Witchcraft is as heinous a sin as there is. Worship of Satan. And he says, if we're presumptuous, we're the same as Satan worshipers. We must be meek and humble and gentle and loving and forgiving. I think one of our problems, among many, is that we do see the Word of God as the standard to live by. And it is a very high standard. It is a holy, righteous, perfect standard. And it is so easy to see how others fall short of it. And since we are all held to this standard, we tend to be willing to look at each other and say, Aha! You're not matching it. You're not meeting it and then make our judgments and our accusations and our attitudes. We somehow seem to have a great capacity for perhaps recognizing our own weaknesses and faults, but we have some way to justify, for the time being, what they are. And to find an excuse for ourselves... And to make provisions for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof, as it's put in the New Testament. We make exceptions for ourselves. We are willing to sometimes forgive and be merciful upon ourselves. Sometimes we're pretty hard upon ourselves. And that's another problem. Because we can get downtrodden and discouraged and frustrated. Don't be any harder on yourself than Christ is on you. And love your neighbor as yourself. Don't be any harder on Him than Christ is going to be. So yes, we all fall short of the glory of God and we all fall short of this standard. And we are way too willing to stab each other in the back because none of us reaches what we're searching for. We all fall short. So if you're going to be willing to go before God and pray for mercy and forgiveness, then he says that him granting that is contingent upon you showing mercy and forgiveness to others. He is going to remove our sins as far as the east is from the west and never mention them again. How many times do we assess the faults, the weaknesses, the sins of our brothers and sisters in Christ right here and presume before others, as we talk to others, to be presumptuous and to put down the bride of Christ? He doesn't like it in Satan. And he doesn't like it in you and me. We have got to come to love everybody in this room as much as we love ourselves. Now, if there's anybody here that you don't love as much as you love yourself, it's time to do your homework. That means for everybody in the room, including yours truly, we all have homework to do. Do we not? We must lay off one another, brethren. When we hurt one another and say negative, backstabbing things about each other, we are helping to kill and destroy the very bride that Christ loves. It doesn't get any more serious than this. That's why he made it an unpardonable sin. If you are unwilling to forgive your brother or your sister in this room and overlook their faults and weaknesses and show mercy on them, you are committing the unpardonable sin. I appreciate what Gordon said in the sermonette because it made me focus on this And realize how serious it is. Now this is a very encouraging chapter. But he did say, this is my attitude toward my bride. I want you to listen. And have the ready, willing, bubbling up mind to encourage, strengthen, help, compliment... And forgive one another. Then we're getting somewhere. The king's daughter, verse 13, is all glorious within. Her clothing is of worked gold. She shall be brought to the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins her companions that follow her shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. Happiness, dancing, singing, shouts for joy can we begin to capture that attitude toward one another of singing and laughing and complimenting and strengthening and helping one another instead of putting one another down? If we could just capture this bubbling spring of joy that is mentioned at the beginning of this chapter, we would solve most of our relationship problems in this room if we could just encapsulate Psalm 45 in our lives. Instead of your fathers shall be your children, whom you may make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise you forever and ever. God has in mind, to put you and me before the whole world in the millennium and in the great white throne judgment for generation after generation and hold us up for praise, honor, worship, and glory. <coughs> that it is his attitude and his mind toward every one of you in this room. Let this mind be in you there was also in christ